0: Hello and
1: welcome in to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, January 8th. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in to today's program. So uh, just right off the top, just before 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon, I got this notification on my phone informing me that Iran has launched tens of missiles at two Iraqi military bases hosting U.S. troops. So that was, of course, a response to the U.S. killing of its most powerful military commander, Qasem Soleimani. The uh, Iranian supreme leader called it a slap against the U.S. military presence in the region. The question now is what happens next? Well, we heard from President Donald Trump this morning about the situation, so I'll play the beginning of his address here before getting a little deeper in to this conversation.
0: As long as I'm President of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you, the American people should be extremely grateful, and happy, no americans were harmed in last night's attack by the iranian regime we suffered no casualties all of our soldiers are safe and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases our great american forces are prepared for anything iran appears to be standing down which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world.
1: Yeah, so there's uh, the beginning of President Trump's speech. He had about uh, a 10-minute address, a little bit less than that. So that was about the first minute there. And I think uh, for me personally, that was um, maybe some more calming uh, comments than I might have anticipated, especially from uh, the president uh, and who he is right now. But I thought I'd uh, bring on a uh, political scientist from the University of Victoria to get a quick reaction here now. So I'm joined on the line by Janai Aragon. Janai, thanks for coming back on the show here.
2: Jeff, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes. it's been quite the topsy turvy uh, couple of weeks. Looking at this, well, I I guess the last week really.
1: Yeah, and then these last you know 24 hours have really sort of ramped things up in terms of their uh, uh, you know just just the ability for me to to be glued into the situation as much as I have. Like obviously it's been a it's been a whirlwind, like you said, week. But uh, in these last 24 hours, have really kind of um, brought it to a head here. So um, maybe just first and foremost, I'll just get you to kind of speak to. How you've been following the situation I mean like you said in the last week it's been quite a quite a story to to be paying attention to and and what was uh, sort of your thoughts here last night I assume just like uh, me you were probably glued to your TV or glued to your Twitter feed or whatever uh, way you're getting your news from just uh, watching the situation unfold and trying to figure out kind of what was going to happen next
2: yeah, I was watching this situation unfold like so many, regardless of their partisanship or even citizenship status. It was. I was really sad to see the um, flight that, uh, you know, where we lost so many um, Canadians and others um, in the Ukraine. That was just terrible, and hopefully it was truly just some sort of accident. I, you know, have really mixed feelings about all of this because part of me is thinking we were on the road to something like this happening when um, Trump pulled out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, you know, the non-nuclear proliferation agreement that the previous president had signed in 2015. And so in 2018, Trump pulled out of it and said, you know, it wasn't working in his particular Opinion, Even um, though former Pentagon officials commented that it was working, uh, we've had a tumultuous relationship between um, the United States and Iran for <laughs> um, many, many decades, if not longer than that. And so by Trump pulling out of that particular agreement, it um, really set up this particular situation or something similar um, to happen. And so it's unfortunate to see the way in which this has unfolded. I do think it all could have been prevented had he um, not pulled out of the 2015 agreement. But when he was running for president, he said that he didn't support it. Um, So it was just a matter of you know, time for him once he became the president, for him to move forward with some of the issues that he discussed while he was running for um, election. Now, in particular, if we want to talk about his um, statement, um, it was really interesting last night for him to say all is well. I know a lot of people had issues about that particular phrase on Twitter, given that we didn't know the exact numbers of fatalities and casualties um, of you know, U.S. troops or others for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know because that also affects the oh emotional intelligence or empathy quotient for others who look to the United states uh, and, and I noticed that later on um, this morning or i suppose earlier this morning, Trump tweeted a uh, image of the American flag, and in Iran we saw someone tweet or many tweets. Mm -hmm. as well leaders and others, the Iranian flag. So this is unfolding in very interesting and, frankly, problematic ways.
1: So, I mean, what do you think, I guess, given what Trump had to say today, um, you know, he says he's going to be immediately imposing economic sanctions on Iran, not really a surprise there, Um, but it sounds like in terms of immediate, uh, you know, violent conflict that, that might be on hold, at least for the time being. Um, at least that's how I'm interpreting it. Of course, you can never really be for sure when we're talking about, um, you know, Donald Trump. But uh, at least during this this point in time, it sounds like there will be uh, some level of, of peace, I guess. That's not really the right word, but you know what I'm trying to say. Um, so, I mean, what do you think kind of is the next, uh, next step here? I mean, is it just sort of a, a wait and see if anyone does sort of have this more uh, another counter reaction to, to what's taken place?
2: Well, I think one of the first things that he has likely done or will do today is confer with congressional leadership. Um, Because, make no mistake, many um, came forward last night and said that they had not been informed um, previously. And this is the tricky part because there are checks and balances in the Constitution. You know, Congress Mm -hmm. from 1973 um, onward with the War um, Powers Resolution. took some, pulled some power back from the executive branch because Congress is the one that can declare war. But the check from the executive branch is that the president is the commander in chief. Now, what Trump did was not illegal, was not treasonous. What needs to happen is the conferral With Congress. And the big thing about the War Powers Resolution, you know, will we have troops on the ground for um, more than 30, 60 days, that sort of thing? Um, So it's going to be really interesting here, um, just given, you know, that Congress has voted to impeach um, this. President, You know, and some are going so far as saying he's doing this to avoid um, the impeachment process, that sort of thing. Because, you know, in, in the United States, when there's heightened fear of terrorism or some sort of conflict, there's this rally around the flag effect.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
2: people will support the commander in chief. And I'm not one of those folks who believe that the intention was to change the headlines, the media attention, that sort of thing, um, I I just think that that would be too manipulative, too diabolical. And some of your listeners might think that that sounds like this current president. Um, Regardless of that, I think that there's more here that we might not know about that, you know, the um, leaders in the Pentagon, the cabinet, uh, you know, the so-called kitchen cabinet for Trump are aware of. And because they noted there was an imminent threat, an imminent attack. And I am going to... Um, hold my judgment and partisanship in check here, and think that there really was an imminent threat to the United States. And remember, I um, am an American citizen by birth, and a Canadian citizen. Um, what? In, almost two years ago. I'm trying to be impartial
1: here, Jeff. <laughs> well, there are a lot of people out there that seem to have that sentiment, you know, that this uh, is a distraction from the impeachment process, and this is just an attempt, more so, to change the headline than anything else. I think one of the telling signs for me last night was just how quiet uh, Donald Trump was when uh, looking at, like, his, his Twitter feed, for example. It was a, uh, it was pretty quiet, which is uh, kind of a, a sign that he is taking things a little more seriously, and he is meeting with his, with his aides and, and getting those advice uh, from his. And I I just felt, uh, you know, that that almost told me a little bit more than than uh, what he actually said today was just that he wasn't out, uh, you know, rambling and and sending out tweets, uh, you know, on a rampant basis last night. That sort of told me that the situation is being handled with uh, with a lot more care than maybe what we've seen Trump do in the past.
2: Oh, yes, my head is nodding right now in agreement. You know, I was on um, Twitter and other social networking sites um, until right before midnight, just looking and then going back to Twitter to see if he was tweeting. And because he wasn't, it gave me pause that hopefully he was listening to advisors because you are completely correct. At times, um, his array of uh, rambling or problematic tweets makes one gasp
3: mm-hmm
1: Yeah, and there's no shortage of uh, uh, gasping moments when, uh, when looking at that Twitter feed and, and seeing some of the things he says. but uh, yeah let that, that silence just just spoke volumes to me. Uh, unfortunately, Janai, we're were pretty much out of time. so thank you so much for uh, coming on the program today and speaking with me. Um, yeah, this is definitely a situation that's going to continue to unfold and one will continue to monitor and, and perhaps uh, we can we can chat about it again in the future or, or hopefully some, some good news out of this whole situation.
2: Absolutely. And as usual, Jeff, thank you so much for having
1: me. Anytime. That was uh, Janai Aragon with the Department of Political Science at the University of Victoria. So again, the president spoke this morning among those comments, uh, you know, just saying that uh, it sounds like there will be some level of uh, uh, peace for now. That's not the right word. Peace is not the right word. But that's the one that comes to mind. That's, uh, you know, there's not going to be any imminent uh, violent threat. So. Uh, Hopefully that stays true and and, and we'll continue to watch the situation as it unfolds. Uh, Coming up next, though, we'll we'll move away from the political realm here a little bit, uh, at least get into some uh, municipal budgeting stuff here. The city of Kamloops is changing to cold water when flooding its ice rinks. What exactly does that change entail? Well, I'll be joined by the city's manager of facilities after this. (laughs)
0: The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 a.m. News Talk and Radio nl.com Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back in here on Wednesday.
1: The Kamloops city staff have made the decision to start flooding city rinks with cold water. That's a change from the hot water that would typically have been used at rinks in the past. Here to discuss this change, why it's being made, and sort of what the advantages are is Civic Facilities Manager Jeff Putnam. Jeff, thanks for uh, coming on the program here. Oh, happy to be here. Good morning. So let's just start with the uh, the tail of the tape here. So ice resurfacers and city rinks traditionally have used large quantities of hot water, but now they're making the switch to cold water. So can, we, can you tell me first just sort of when this decision was made to make the switch from hot to cold water and, and why this decision was made?
3: Yeah, I sure can. And I'm really proud to say that this was uh, kind of a grassroots uh, movement from our staff. Um, and a few years ago, uh, we've become a lot more focused on being an environmental leader and kind of reducing our carbon footprint wherever we can because most recreation facilities and ice rinks and pools are, can be very energy intensive. So uh, what we did is we started asking questions and um, looked at opportunities to perhaps reduce the temperature of the hot water that we put in. So every time, just so your listeners know, that uh, typical Zamboni has uh, gets filled with hot water, or had uh, traditionally been filled with uh, hot water uh, when uh, we do the typical ice flood. So what, what the Zamboni does is scrapes off just the 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 uh, loose snow on the surface, and adds a thin layer of water. It kind of smooths it out, and the way we go. So um, after doing some research, we realized that heck, uh, we don't necessarily have to put uh, piping hot water into the The zambonis we can actually reduce the temperature significantly to it's pretty much uh, it's tempered water so right now it's going in uh, around between 60 and 65 degrees fahrenheit Um, and typically the ice surface is around 23 degrees fahrenheit which is about minus four celsius so you know it's not cold cold water but it's certainly um, much cooler than lukewarm or hot
1: yeah so when kind of looking at this subject uh, you know i was kind of thinking about what is the advantage i guess of using hot water and uh, like you you know some people seem to say you know it melts the ice a little bit and it allows it to uh, bond quicker because um you know it's able to to, to mold with the current ice service a little better i guess how how is it determined that you know cold water wasn't or, or cooler water i guess we should probably say um is, is not having a, a detrimental effect on the ice. I mean, what, what sort of steps were you able to, to go to, to find that out? And, and uh, you know, I'm just curious sort of when this kind of clued in that, hey, maybe we don't need to use hot water and, and we're going to get just as good of ice using some some cooler water as well. Yeah, well, um,
3: so the ice quality, um, I find, because I, my beer league team plays twice a week. We play at Valley View and we play at the Sports Centre. And I can tell you that the ice quality is definitely a little bit harder than uh, traditional ice, which we really like um, as hockey players. Um, so I personally, I think it's better to play on. But again, that's very subjective. It, it was like if I'd asked you what temperature or the comfort in your office, you, you might have an opinion and your coworkers might have the opposite opinion. So it's very, you know, it's still quite subjective, but I can tell you um, it, it hasn't had any issues uh from my perspective on ice quality but the biggest benefit is um we're not firing up these hot water boilers they're all natural gas fired so if if we're not dumping 20 to 30 um, uh, loads of hot water out of them every day and they're not recharging they're saving you know a lot of money for taxpayers i mean it's about fifty thousand dollars if i add up between the the four rinks and the actual carbon footprint um, that we're saving is equivalent to 20 residential homes. So it's, it's fairly significant.
1: Now, like you had mentioned there, it's currently taking place at four of six rinks. Um, from the, the release that was put out here last week, it was saying that Memorial is set to come online here in 2020 and, and Sandman Centre is a little bit up in the air at this point in time. So can you talk a little bit about Sandman Centre itself and why it's taking uh,
3: or it's unsure if it's going to be joining this program at this point in time? yes for sure so the uh, as you know the blazers are the primary tenant we would want to have good conversations with the whl and the blazers i'm not an, i'm not sure of. i know there would be some arenas already in uh, chl that um, are using cold water floods but i don't know that for a fact yet so we'd have to do some research and also it is an event building like last night um, there was a concert um last last night of course so we, we it often will go in a 24-hour period between an ice hockey event to a dry floor concert event and back to hockey. So there's a lot of external influences on ice quality and, and a lot of factors that our staff have to look at, uh, not, not just the, the flooding. So that would be the last one we, we would bring online, and but my expectation is that we would uh, eventually do that. But next year, or, next, or the, in the fall of this year, our plan is to bring Memorial Arena online. So that'll be five rinks out of the six.
1: Yeah, and just doing some quick math here, so it's uh, like you said, about fifty thousand dollars in savings. Forty-eight thousand nine hundred dollars was the cost that was given on those four rinks. so That's about twelve thousand a rink. So I guess every time you switch over, it's about a twelve thousand dollars savings. Yep, that's correct,
3: and uh, that's you know that's quite significant because um, taxpayers do subsidize ice rink operations. That are it's uh, between uh, forty and fifty percent level right now. So any we could save uh, off the bottom line is certainly good news for uh, the taxpayers in Kamloops.
1: Perfect, Jeff. Well, uh, unfortunately, I, I did have some other stuff on my agenda here to speak to you with, but we are out of time. I just uh, was too interested in what's going on with our ice rinks here in town. So thanks so much for joining me. Maybe I'll give you a call later to follow up.
3: Okay, Jeff, thanks a lot.
1: Right on. That was the city's Civic Facilities Manager, Jeff Putnam, talking about how the city is making that switch, like we had mentioned, from uh, flooding city ice rinks with hot water, and it's now making the switch to cold water And uh, Memorial Arena. Coming online, making five out of six uh, ice rinks in the city doing so uh, come the fall here. Coming up next, many condo owners and townhouse owners in B.C. are feeling the effects of increased insurance rates for strata buildings. I'll be talking about that after this. <laughs> Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, January 8th. Thanks so much for tuning in here. Uh, Many condo and townhouse owners in British Columbia are feeling the effects of increasing insurance rates for strata buildings in the province. Uh, There has been a sudden spike of anywhere from 50 to 300%. Uh, A recent story that I read out of Abbotsford this week spoke to a whopping 780% increase at one building, So, uh, and that's a fairly new building at that. So here to talk about these insurance rate increases is the president of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC, Tony Gioventu. Tony, thanks so much for coming on the program here.
4: Oh, thanks for having me on, Jeff.
1: So, yeah, first let me just kind of ask you about how you understand these dramatic cost increases. What is the driving force behind these?
4: Well, um, there are it's a kind of a collision of um, circumstances and almost a perfect storm for increases in fees and also mass drastic increases in deductible amounts. Uh, we have a shortage of insurers who are providing insurance in the BC industry and in markets like Toronto and areas where there are high risks. Uh, and we also have um, a pretty substantial increase in the replacement costs or values of buildings uh, that compounded with much larger, more expensive developments or aging developments that have not been well-maintained. And it pretty much adds a recipe for some pretty significant increases for, you know, a significant number of condos across the province.
1: Yeah, so how is BC kind of differing from some other provinces? Because you had mentioned a lack of insurance providers here in BC, and obviously ICBC is. The, the main one uh, main provider that people look to here and then you can go ahead and 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 add on on top of that but i mean just how is that lack of of uh, insurance providers impacting insurance rates here compared to elsewhere
4: Well, the insurance industry uh, for um, insuring uh, residences and commercial buildings, residential buildings and condos is not connected to ICBC. And so it's an independent private corporation, private market. Uh, And so what happens is your Strata Council, your property manager, goes off to your um, insurance broker. Your broker then goes to the market where there are insurance companies who will basically provide the binders for insurance they'll provide your insurance coverage, but none of them now are prepared to take the, or assume the 100% of the responsibility for the whole um, package. So what ends up happening is that the, um, uh, the, the um, uh, industry itself is struggling and competing for small amounts. So, you know, for a lot of stratas last year, you know, if you were in a 100-unit high-rise or a 50-unit townhouse complex and you've suddenly got on the high-risk radar, um, you probably are going to see your policy increase probably 200%, um, if, if that little. Um, if you're lucky, you're well under it. Um, if you're in a community like, um, we've seen a lot of communities like Penticton and Vernon, even Kamloops, uh, well-maintained, smaller strata have seen very small increases, maybe 10 or 15% with not much change. It really comes down to the amount of risk and what the insurance industry is prepared to hold, uh, and that's one of the biggest challenges right now.
1: Um, uh, when we, we were talking about these traumatic increases, is like you had said, you know, kind of 50 to 200% being somewhat, somewhat in that normal range when talking about those uh, perhaps, uh, quote-unquote, higher-risk areas. Um, you know, is there anything that people can do, I mean, to kind of offset these costs, or are they just sort of stuck with them? I mean, when we're talking about insurance, I guess there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do, but, I mean, we're talking about some pretty big extra payments for, for people who are living in these stratas.
4: Yeah, and, and if you're an investor into some of the resort properties in the Thompson and the Okanagan area, you're going to find that you're you're going to be in one of the high-risk areas where these fees are going to go up, and it's probably going to result in your monthly condo fees going up 100 to $300 a month in some cases, just to be able to cover the insurance. Now, there's a lot of things that Stratus can do. For, for starters, they can work with their broker, and when they get a quote that is substantial um, and they, you know, the deductibles have gone up, the costs have gone up, talk to the broker and find out what options may be available. Are there other conditions that we can change or alter on our policy that can make this better? Um, More importantly, though, deal with all of the issues on your buildings that are likely to cause a risk or a claim. So, you know, it's, it's, Difficult. Asking, you're asking an insurer basically to insure my um, uh, complex of, you know, my apartment building of 100 units. Um, but in the last two years, we've had five claims, uh, and those claims have all been a result of pipe failures or homeowner neglect or washing machine hose failures, or a variety of things that have caused um, damage. And that's a problem in condos, especially in apartment buildings and high-rises. When you have a flood in one unit, it's never just the one unit that's affected. It's always going to be 10, 15, or more units. And so the cost of these claims and the risks are really so much higher for condos than they are for townhouses or for single detached units.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I live in an apartment myself, and that's something that you fear. You know, you can't uh, you can't control what your neighbors are doing. You know, if something happens in your apartment, you can take care of it as quickly as you can, but uh, you never know what the person above you is doing to react to some of those situations. So um, it's always yeah, something no to, to be wary yeah. of,
4: right? Um, yeah. Well, the other thing is, is, is when you're renewing your policies, take a close look at your deductibles, and this is what's really the scary part, especially for homeowners. The deductibles have conventionally been somewhere around $10,000 or $25,000 for a water escape. And homeowners on their homeowner policies could, for the most part, get insurance to cover that in the event their washing machine failed, their um, bathtub overflowed, they had a fire in their kitchen, you know, these kind of events. What we're seeing now is deductibles are increasing to $100,000. And the problem for owners is twofold. The first is, if you cause that claim or are responsible for that claim, your strata can get a judgment against you for that $100,000 you're going to be paying that. That's a big hit. The other problem is if the amount of the damage is below $100,000 and whether you caused the claim or not, but your unit was affected and your ceiling was damaged and your carpets were damaged, if the amount is below the claim on the strata's insurance, you're responsible for the damages to your own unit. The strata is not. So it's only when a, a strata insurance claim is affected that that claim covers the original building asset. So it's these are quirky little things in the legislation that homeowners really need to pay attention to.
1: Yeah, definitely something that people should be aware of. I don't know if every homeowner or every uh, condo owner would, would think about some of those um, those impacts that, that you're talking about there. So definitely something for people to pay attention to. That's why I think this was an important story to bring up. And when talking about those premiums, I mean, have you been receiving a lot of calls um, You know, throughout the province just of, of these dramatic increases. Like, I'm just curious what some of the extremes that you have seen. We've talked about, you know, 50 to 200 percent being some of the normal rates that have, uh, you know, increased rates that you've seen when talking about uh, those in more high risk areas, quote unquote. Um, you know, have you seen uh, some that are, are way and above that?
4: 500 percent is the highest we've seen, and that includes a $500,000 deductible and that's for a property in the okanagan who has had an excessive number of claims in the past five years
1: okay so that's uh, i guess can, can you justify that when, when talking about something like that i mean five hundred thousand dollars that's uh that's an, a substantial number i mean is that justifiable yeah. even if they have had that number of claims
4: well they're basically self-insured right that's that's what this has come down to unless there's a catastrophic loss. but the last claim in this complex was over 1.5 million dollars so you know when you start looking at the at the exposure the insurers are taking on it, it's significant. I think people forget that um, under our legislation the strata has to insure for full replacement value. So if you're in a you know, an apartment building or a high-rise building and the replacement value is for constru- reconstruction is 155 million dollars, your insurer is basically assuming the liability that in the event of a fire or an earthquake or a catastrophic loss that they- they're going to write a check for one hundred and fifty five million dollars. And that's and so, you know, then you base that upon you step back and say, okay, our insurance this year is and then you start to come up with some relationship of the value versus the risk. And I think what's happened is, is that insurers have been exposed to some pretty high claims in British Columbia. And, and there are silly things that people are still allowing. We're still allowing gas barbecues on a apartment and condo buildings that are wood frame buildings. We have at least one or two major fires a year in B.C. where, where they're caused by gas barbecues on balconies. You know, it's, it's time to kind of wake up and say, wait a minute, you guys, there, there's some certain things here we just simply can't do anymore because of the cost, the risk, and the, not to mention the risk to everybody else in the building.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully there's some uh, condo owners and some uh, uh, strata board members, I guess, that will be listening to this, and maybe they can make some changes to their uh, to their rules of their other building, and, and hopefully they can lower some rates that way. But uh, I think this is an important topic to bring forward because it is something that uh, many people are dealing with, and, and some people are, are dealing with that probably are unable to actually pay for these uh, increased fees. So uh, definitely something worth talking about. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Tony. Really appreciate your time.
4: It's a pleasure. Talk to you again soon. Bye uh,
1: for now. Bye-bye. That was uh, Tony Giaventu, the president of the Condominium Homeowners Association of British Columbia. Uh, coming up after the break, I'm going to be joined by the host of NL Newsday, Mr. Brett Manier, as we talk more about the situation between the U.S. and Iran and what may be coming next. So stay tuned.
0: You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. And welcome back to
1: the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, January 8th. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you have been paying attention to the news at all in the last day, you know about the situation between Iran and the U.S. The United States, of course, killed Qasem Soleimani uh, over the weekend, and then Iran retaliated with uh, two missile strikes or two or strikes on two military bases in Iraq. Of course, those were hosting U.S. troops. I'm joined now here to talk more about this with the host of NL Newsday right here on Radio NL. You can hear that from three to six in the afternoon. It's Brett Menear. Brett, thanks for uh, coming on here. Hey, thanks, man. This is this is uh, weird being on the other side. Yeah, well, when's the last time you were on the air in the morning? It's probably been a long time, eh? It's been a while. Yeah, so I thought I'd uh, throw you off your game a little bit here today and bring you in. <laughs> <laughs> so you were live on air yesterday when this happened, because I got my uh, notification on my phone probably, you know, just before 4 o'clock, Yeah. Um, and, and then we had it on uh, the 4 o'clock news there, some breaking news that this was indeed happening. So just I'm just curious, what was your initial reaction when you, when you saw that this was playing out? Um, you know, I, I had a little little bit of fear when I first just saw the the headline immediately come across my uh, my radar.
5: Well, okay, so when I was uh, sitting at the uh, controls doing a news day, I've got uh, well, as you as you know, but for the listener, you know, you've got a screen with the news wires open right in front of you. The Associated Press uh, ran a bulletin first that Iranian state television was showing images of uh, missiles leaving, and there was. Uh, you know, missiles being fired up into the night sky and all this, and uh, these images were running apparently on Iranian state television just on repeat. Um, And uh, I was obviously alarmed right away, um, but... Uh, I have to say that uh, it's not uncommon for Iranian state television to run uh, propaganda. In the past, right. they you know they've shown images of uh, missile tests that never really happened, or they've portrayed missile tests that were unsuccessful as successful through doctored images and that kind of thing. So originally, when it was just Iranian state television uh, showing that same image over and over again, I was like, okay, th- this is obviously worrying, but there's no confirmation of incoming fire uh, from the Pentagon or any sources in Iraq or uh, nothing from any coalition uh, governments or anything like that. Um, but it didn't take long. It was like maybe within 10 minutes and the Pentagon confirmed that there was an attack. Uh, uh, it was either underway or uh, just wrapping up. So that's, I mean, that's how it unfolded, right? And then from then on it's just uh, checking all of the uh, various news sources uh, that we have, that just uh, you know feed
1: into the feed into the
5: wire and whatnot.
1: Yeah, and I think at that point in time, it was sort of just a matter of well, what uh, what kind of damage are we looking at here? What uh, could potentially happen when we're talking about damage to the facilities themselves and and casualties being the the big one? And I think that's sort of what everyone was waiting for last night was to find out uh, just what the results were of these airstrikes and and what the damage would be. Um, and and the president came out today and said, you know, there were no casualties and the damage was minimal. So I think this is probably the best news we could have had here this morning. And it sounds like, uh, you know, President Trump's not going to have an immediate retaliation to this. Um, So, I mean, I guess, were you kind of just waiting in that same thing to find out? I mean, a lot of people were saying this was the red line that Iran has crossed, but uh, maybe, maybe they didn't cross it as far as some pundits think. Yeah, what it's
5: starting to look like is that the Iranian regime is actually quite possibly really cornered here. Economic sanctions have hit them hard. Uh, The government there uh, had not been popular of late. There have been a lot of uh, sort of popular uh, uprisings there of late that uh, the regime has had to put down recently, just within the last month. Um, but in a way, this kind of momentarily kind of galvanized the Iranian population. But uh, at the end of it, they're economically wounded. Their ability to kind of engage in any kind of conventional war is pretty limited at the moment, though they're not to be taken lightly either. They, have, they do have a massive military, a big navy. Um, they are able to go. But it kind of looks like um, now, like Iran may have been looking for an off-ramp, they had to do something because they had the population kind of galvanized. There was very popular support for doing something. And, um, you know, this looks kind of a lot like when uh, Donald Trump fired those uh, cruise missiles at that Syrian air base, right? And it just sort of put a bunch of potholes in the runway. And then the next day, everything was over. It's starting to look like that was Kind of a thing. This obviously had the potential mm-hmm. for uh, for for casualties, but when you're shooting at air bases, they've got all kinds of early warning radar right. and all this. They would have they would have seen it coming. And there's some speculation out there that who knows? Maybe there was even some back channeling from the Iranian government to let.
1: Uh, to to kind of let word get out that there were going to be missiles incoming. Yeah, well, when we're talking about a base like that too, I'm sure the U.S. would have some form of intelligence that would uh, be able to warn them of, of some sort of imminent strike like that. Um, so I, I think that definitely had a result in the fact that there were no casualties, but like uh, like Trump said earlier today, that the, the damage to these bases um, was minimal. Uh, curious to know as well, because I know you're obviously on Twitter quite a bit, and mm. we're probably following some of the social media responses to this attack, and Trump uh, was surprisingly quiet on the issue. And one of the things that said to me was, uh, well, he's actually taking this situation, you know, incredibly seriously. Um, He's talking to his advisors. He's actually listening to advice and he's, you know, huddling up with those that are close to him and wasn't going to make any sort of rash decision. Because that's typically what you see, right? When something happens, Trump's on Twitter reacting right away. But the fact that he was a little bit mum spoke to me, uh, spoke to me a little bit. Uh,
5: There were stories last night that started to uh, come out during uh, the show that um, that the White House was considering Trump doing a uh, address to the nation last night, and then they scrubbed it. Now, uh, the White House press secretary is is saying that you know this was this was fake news that was never a possibility, but this was multiple media outlets reporting it. There was something going on. Uh, I imagine it probably was quite chaotic, and that that was probably on the table. But at the end of the day, I think they wanted to wait for all the, to see casualty figures and that kind of thing. I mean, we can't, we, we won't know. No, um, but. Um, but uh, I, I think that um, sort of reading between the lines, they wanted to wisely wait for more info before just sort of uh, uh, shooting off. One thing I wanted to s- sort of squeeze in, Jeff, is that, uh, I, you know, I think that while Iran was maybe looking for an off ramp here, and this may have been it, um, it's probably it, it's hard for me to believe that this will be. All there is. I think that this is probably going to be the most flashy thing, but I think whatever they do next is probably going to be some of that more in the shadows. Mm-hmm. Type uh, type work that uh, they might engage in using for force through through proxies again. So uh, we you know we don't we don't know what's what's going to happen, but it looks like the situation is beginning to de-escalate, But uh, who
1: knows what a new, another news cycle brings? Yeah, it looks like that's the situation, but yeah. uh, we will see as it yeah. unfolds. And uh, yeah, like you had said, I uh, I don't. This is clearly not the end of the story. I mean, it's not over just because this happened. It's uh, it's something that we're going to continue to monitor, and and we probably won't see all. Of of what's going to happen? This, like you said, was sort of the flashiest bit that could have happened, and mm-hmm. so that's why it's being, um, you know, shown as uh, on, on all the news wires and things as much as it has. It draws your attention, and uh, the headlines certainly spark, uh, you know, some some thoughts in people's brains. But uh, you know, these these less uh, exciting developments won't uh, won't make the headlines the same way yeah uh, well Brett uh, that's pretty much wrapping up our time you're gonna be on here again uh, in about five hours time so five hours to bring her all together yeah so you got some time to, to figure out what's coming up on the show I'm sure this will be uh, on there in some capacity and uh, yeah. we'll look forward to seeing what comes up there so thanks so much for coming on Brett appreciate your time thanks and, for having uh, me we'll, uh, we'll listen to you here again uh, from three to six host of NL Newsday, right here on Radio NL. Well, that pretty much wraps things up here today. I want to thank all my guests for uh, coming on here today. Uh, Jeff Putnam was on earlier talking about uh, hot versus cold flooding of ice services. So that was an interesting chat as well. Uh, Tony Giovento with the uh, Condo Association of BC talking about those uh, increasing insurance premiums that a lot of condo owners are dealing with. And I had uh, political scientists with uh, B- University of Victoria, Janai Aragon, on as well to kick things off to talk more about the situation. Iran and uh, yeah so good conversations throughout the whole show you can check out the podcast on radionlcom slash podcast or find it on Spotify Google Play uh, wherever you look for your podcast feel free to look up the Jeff Andreas show so like I said that wraps things up for me here today I want to thank all my guests for joining me and a big thank you to all of you for listening and remember whether you join me for a short while or a long while just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted I'll be back here tomorrow at 9